Hello and welcome to the WAMDA podcast. My name is Triska Hamid and I'm the editor at WAMDA. This month, I spoke with Omar Aslan Gurel, a Dubai-based entrepreneur now on his seventh venture. Omar recently founded Repeat, a food app that rewards customers with discounts based on frequency of visits to a restaurant. The company recently raised $2.5 million in its Series A round. Omar, thank you for coming to the WAMDA offices. Very nice to meet you. So before we get into Repeat and how you founded that company, tell us about your entrepreneurial journey. How did you become an entrepreneur? Uh, The first time I had an idea of a business, my mother was living in the south of uh, Turkey and my father was living in the, the west of Turkey. I saw a difference in price for fish in two cities. So in my summer holidays when I was 17, I had the idea of getting uh, this ship from one city shipped to the other place and sell it in the market. I realized uh, after the first two transactions that uh, it was very much a commodity and not much margin in that business and you needed to do huge volumes and without infrastructure wasn't possible. So what I did was um, I pivoted my first pivot in life. And uh, I realized that the opportunity was actually in lobsters and langoustine. So when you remove them from the sea, uh, what ends up happening is they go into something called a hibernation for up to three days. But if you put them straight back into the water, then they will die. So my first uh, pivoting was actually a failure and I was very much uh, bailed out by my grandmother. So it's a funny story. So I went to the market and bought lobsters and my grandmother had a swimming pool with salt water inside. So I brought these animals, 20, 30 of them, and chucked them into the pool. And in space of one hour, every single one of them died. Okay. And then... uh, Is that a more humane way to kill lobsters? It was absolutely not my intention to kill them in that way. In fact, my idea was to basically... Because on Mondays and Tuesdays, beginning of the week, they're cheap. Okay. Because nobody figured out, figures out a way to keep them alive till the end of the week. So you buy them on Monday, Tuesday, if you keep them alive, and then sell them to the high-end restaurants when the supply is tight on Saturday and Sunday, that's how you can make money. So I chucked them into the pool. They all died. My grandmother called all her friends, cooked the lobsters and sold it to them and got my investment back. But then I started basically learning the whole process and I actually mastered the process of taking them from the hibernation stage back to life and then being able to sell them to the restaurants when they're live. So in space of uh, one month in the summer holidays of 2004, I believe I made like $5,000, which was an exorbitant amount of money for a 16 year old kid. So that was my first pivot and my first bailout by my grandma and the first business venture. I was very inspired uh, by the book I read by Richard Branson, Losing My Virginity. So uh, that was about his, his journey. Of founding Virgin, uh, the company. Yeah, yeah, Virgin Atlantic, Virgin Group, and uh, arguably probably in the top 100 entrepreneurs of the world. So what ends up happening, I read this book, and it gave me very much a different thought, because the conventional world and conventional people, 99% of the population, the ideal situation is you study, you go to high school, secondary school, whatever, you do your university degree, you gain a bit of experience, then you do your MBA, then you get your high paying corporate job. And along the way, if you ever have a good idea, you're not really encouraged to try it. So there it was, a guy who didn't go to university and who succeeded. So I was like, look, this guy might be onto something interesting. So I was going to boarding school in the UK at the time. And I was accepted in London School of Economics. And uh, after uh, an internship in Dubai in the summer of 2005, I said, look, after I finish my A-levels, I'm going to take a year off 
come to Dubai, set up something, I don't know what. If it succeeds, I don't go back to university. And if it fails, I go and study. So that's exactly what I did. And I didn't fail. So I continued. So my first business was uh, in trading in mobile accessories. Okay. And I went to China, visited so many factories, uh, went to Hong Kong Electronic Exhibition. That's where I found the factories, went to China, met people, got products manufactured, imported it here, sold in the local market to all the big retailers. And um, I didn't go bust. I didn't make a crazy amount of money because now that I look back in hindsight, it's, uh, it's not the most scalable business. And it's, uh, again, a commodity business. It's a small margin business. So how did your family take it when you told them that you weren't going to go back to university? Uh, disaster. I mean, it was, uh, except my mother, everybody else was like, are you crazy? Nobody, in the, I mean, they were in a joking way, they were telling me like, you know, nobody's going to let their daughter marry you. You don't have a degree. Like, you know, how are you going to provide for them? And all the silliness, you know, like, uh, so, no, no, there was a lot of pressure. Everybody was saying, get your degree first and do whatever you want. At least let that be on the side. But uh, you rebelled. I rebelled and I didn't go. And in hindsight, now that I look, I believe if you do a strong engineering degree or a strong uh, math related computer science or uh, doctor or architecture. I think it's very, very important to gain a profession. And my profession, in, in my opinion, even though I haven't been to university, is, uh, is in sales and um, spotting opportunity, convincing people to come along the ride and uh, being able to pivot. It's probably what, the, what my profession is. So uh, after the mobile accessories, you set up I went, I went into uh, diesel and fuel oil trading. Okay. I did that for two years also. Then uh, with my partner at the time, I set up the, the second waste engine oil recycling plant in the UAE. Uh, that was an okay business. And then venture number four, uh, while the waste engine oil business was continuing, was a tire recycling factory. I would say that was the first time I uh, succeeded in my life. By success, I mean... 10x. And this was venture number? Four. Okay. And how old were you at this point? Um, I was 24 years old at the start of it. And then um, through uh, some freak events and some other things, uh, it actually, I ended up selling that business, even though it was going well. I, I got out of it, end of 2012. The business was a success. Partnership was not. When did you know that it was time to move on? I have a philosophy in, uh, in startups and entrepreneurship, and it's very much the three-year philosophy. Look, a lot of people look at the start of a venture from the moment you start paying money or from the moment uh, you incorporate. For me, it's the idea. You come up with an idea, then you ask a couple of your friends, and 80% of the time they'll tell you like, ah, it won't work, this, then you kind of switch off and you think about another one. Occasionally, you come up with an idea and where people tell you, yeah, that is a good idea. And then Should you listen to people when they say it's absolutely. not a good idea? You, I think the most important thing for an entrepreneur is identify five to ten people in your circle who are going to tell you the truth when your idea sucks. Okay. So if I ask my mother about any idea because she thinks I'm the greatest gift to humanity, she's always going to say, oh, it's fantastic and it's great. And if I have ever done a business based on what I asked my mother, it wouldn't work. My father has been very, um, very critical. So I think it's very, very important. If you have five to 10 skeptics around you that you can convince, I think that's a very, very important thing because ideas need to be challenged. 
And if you can defend the ideas and convince those people who are skeptical about everything in life, then I think that's the first moment you realize that you're onto something interesting. And then the second stage after that is what I like to call the resource gathering. With resource gathering, it's mostly to do with people and money. If you have a good idea, and if you don't have the right people and the money, then you can't execute. Uh, if you have the money and don't have the right people, also you can't execute. If you have the right people and don't have the money, you also can't execute. So it's basically you have to have the right people on the journey with you and the correct amount of money. I'll tell you why also uh, feasibilities are very important because after this venture number four, I did a venture number five where I set up the world's first organic and biodegradable cigarette brand. That was in 2014. And that was the first time I failed in my life. And it was single-handedly, in my opinion, down to incorrect feasibility study, especially uh, with the part about the marketing side. Because you can't advertise Oh, you can't cigarettes. advertise cigarettes, and um, rightly so. But um, every product has a way to enter the market. And um, you also look for uh, ways in which you can reach out to people who are smokers. So um, that was impossible. The current market, the way it's structured with the four or five global tobacco companies and with the governments being so against, the challenge was just far too great for the budget that we had. So first time I failed in my life. I had businesses that performed okay, bad, good, whatever, but like this was failure, like in every sense of the word. So, and it was very much down to miscalculating the marketing challenges. Did you fail fast or did it, was it a long drawn out process? Um, I could have failed faster. <laughs> I should have failed faster. So you launched it in 2014? 2014 then... till the end, uh, till the middle of 2016, I would say. How, how did it feel? What Sorry? went through your mind when you were realizing that this was just not <clears throat> going to work? As an entrepreneur, you always have plan B, plan C, as a good entrepreneur. I always look at what I learned. See, the good thing that came out of that business was a network of 600 supermarkets. When I had my next idea of creating a supermarket aggregator where people could order from, which was very much the precursor to InstaShop, the only reason why that was possible is because I had been seriously exposed to the supermarket industry, saw their challenges, and that created new ideas. So, of course, it was a failure in every sense of the word, but I made the best out of it. It gave me the inspiration for my next idea. Which was a white label. Which was a white label supermarket app business where we started building. That's still continuing. Uh, it's an insignificant part of our business. But um, that was how I got into the software industry, how I found my co-founder, how we built our tech team and product team and solidified that team, which is the core of any tech business. So at this point, you realized that your business, the cigarette business, had failed. Yes. Was there no point where you thought, maybe I should go and get a regular job? You oh, could... I was down to my last $20,000. And uh, I mean, with $20,000, I was basically like effectively three months away from running out of money. So where I would have to take a job, where I wouldn't have the chance to be able to try out a new idea. So um, luck also is very important in life. By luck, what do we mean? It's, I, don't, I don't mean in this divine way. I mean, uh, the simple act of probability, of math, of something happening at that moment, what we don't comprehend, we call luck. So it was very interesting because I didn't have the means to try out my software business uh, for six months, but I had a tenant. Uh, that tenant left 
So what ended up happening was um, 15 days after the old tenant left, I got a desperate tenant who had an eight-month pregnant wife who, uh, whose sister was living two floors above my apartment. So that guy was willing to pay three years advance rent wow. if I gave him a good deal. So I gave him maybe basically like 30% below the market, but he paid me three years in advance for rent. And that, coupled with the last bits and crumbles that I had, was the $50,000 that I managed to gather to start my software business. So yeah, very much luck. But also, if I didn't have the software company idea, that luck would not have been useful. So you need to have the ideas and the clear path and focus on what you want to do. And then luck kind of happens. So how did you go into software? The idea was to set up a supermarket aggregator that was May 2015. And uh, a month later, InstaShop came out. And uh, hats off to John. He's done a fantastic job and obviously came up with the idea way before me because he had a running prototype, uh, running business a month after I came up with the idea because usually in software business, for you to go from idea to a product usually takes six to nine months. So okay. he just beat us to the market. Because he was so good at it and because he was competent, um, we decided to pivot and go into the white label business where we would provide supermarket applications to uh, mid-sized chains. The idea was to provide to every supermarket, okay. but we quickly found out that through 65% of the dollars spent for grocery in the UAE are collected by Carrefour, Union Co-op, Lulu, and Spinney's and Waitrose. So because out of $3, two goes to them, and they personally see the, their own apps and the whole delivery process as a very strategic part of their business, no matter how many times I went to them, they never outsourced to us. So you have, have the other 35% that could be your potential customers. The small one, two brand supermarkets where InstaShop was very dominant. They didn't have to pay any money up front and it was a very great solution for them. So we were very much left with that 10% of the market, which was the mid-size segment. We have that business currently. We have clients like 7-Eleven and uh, West Zone, Safest Way and W Mart and many other clients. But the scalability was limited. So again, we managed to build a profitable business that started looking after us. But uh, from around mid-2017, the idea was very evident that we need to keep what's working on the side, provide us with income, but this is never going to be your billion dollar idea. So right around that time, we started looking in the market. So what's the next big area where people spend money on after groceries and straight up the list? Yeah, go ahead. Before we get to sure. this, uh, what's the third stage? Idea is very, very important. Good idea that has been skeptic tested. Yes. Yeah. So then it's a good idea. By your dad, yeah. not your mom. Not, no, <laughs> not my mom. And uh, my dad is one of the people. So ideally, I'd like to have 10 skeptics at least. Second stage is, like I said, gathering the money, gathering the people. And the third stage is just running for your life. You have to be fast. Okay. You have to be fast. You can't just take your sweet time. Ah, inshallah, mashallah. No. You have to go for it. You have to, you have to go for it and fast. And uh, some people are like, oh, you know, you do it slowly. We'll do it tomorrow. No, you have to do it like yesterday. First year, in my opinion, is when you test your idea, when you very much um, gather the resources, gather the people, gather the money, and build a prototype. So in the first year, you need to be able to do that. You have to have your core team, your core money, skeptic tested idea and the final product out 
in a year. If you can't do that, you're too slow. Okay. So then the second stage is very much when you go to the market. And market work, markets work in magical ways. They're always right. So when you have this product out there and you test it out, the market tells you different things. Nobody, I mean, maybe one in a hundred gets it spot on from the beginning. So that's the moment where polishing, slight pivoting, and all these things happen. Most businesses die at that stage because they just can't pivot, and they can't polish, and they can't improve fast enough, and they just run out of money. So as a chief resource gatherer, during that stage, you need to have the money and the funding and the believers, the friends, family, and fools, they call them, to, who are funding you to actually go to the next stage. At the end of the second year, you need to have, you need to have figured out exactly what I did wrong, how are we improving it, and starting the third year with a bang. By the end of your third year, at least in your given territory, if you have not achieved break-even or a sustainable model, in my opinion, it's very, very hard to get further funding and then you kind of die off. So it's very much like a, a rocket launch. Make the rocket, li lift it off, and then basically get it into orbit. So that's, that's what you kind of have to do. So it's, uh, by the way, it sounds very easy. It's extremely hard, challenging. You cry, you, you get angry, you get mad. It's uh, whoever, told, whoever tells you is like a keep business and uh, your personal life separate. It's, it's absolutely not true for an entrepreneur. The passion and the emotions that you go through are what makes you you. So um, you can't do it in a very cold-hearted way. It's, 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 it is very personal. So you need everyone around you to support you. Absolutely. And uh, the biggest supporter in my life has always been my wife. And I'm forever grateful to her for putting uh, up with you. for being on this <laughs> journey with me. And I'm, uh, I'm not the regular guy who comes at six o'clock at home and spends all the things. I'm, I see my family pretty much on Thursday evenings and Fridays. But that's, that's the sacrifice. That's the life you choose. Of course, everybody wants to make money. That's why you become an entrepreneur. But the thing is, for me, the main objective prior to money has always been to do whatever I do in my life to be a high impact person. So let, let's talk about your latest venture, Repeat. Tell us briefly what exactly it is. I would say it's very much the culmination of my 13 year journey of uh, being able to come up with better ideas, gather better people, gather more money. Everything. I mean, I'm very grateful for the journey that I went through because I don't think I would have been able to come up with an idea and assemble a team of fellow partners, shareholders and employees without my previous journey. I'm very grateful for all the scars. So what is Repeat? Repeat is a very simple idea. It's the world's first smart loyalty platform for restaurants that dynamically rewards its customers based on their frequency and spending. So this is the technical explanation. Okay. So to a layman, how would I explain it? I would say if you go sooner to a, to a place and if you spend more money in a place, we believe you're entitled to a better price. And repeat is the digitization of that transaction that has been happening for the last 5,000 5, years. So it's, it's kind of like getting a, a better price because you're the regular customer and they know you and you've built that. Oh, yeah, yeah. but you see, we believe in a very fundamental thing. Any transaction needs to make the merchant and the customer happy. Whether you are selling chickens uh, or selling lawn mowing equipment, the transaction is a transaction. If you focus on the transactional part, 
you have to you have to look at it this way the end user the customer for what you're selling first of all you have to have a good product you have to have good service and all these things otherwise nobody's going to give you money right so mm -hmm. you have to have the fundamentals correct whatever you do you do you should do well then then the price part comes right so in this in this uh, uh, area the end user always wants a better price but the challenge of the merchant is they need to always increase their revenue so the only sustainable long-term way for a merchant to give a better price to their customers is if they are behaving better than their ordinary behavior in other words if a customer has a average frequency of 12 times a year they can only reward somebody who comes more frequently than once a month otherwise they'll lose money because if i reward ordinary behavior it's a guaranteed way to lose money right because uh, so our loyalty cards the ones where you get a stamp for every visit rewarding ordinary behavior absolutely that's why it doesn't work so um let's let's put it to you this let me put it to you this way as a customer who goes every day to get my coffee and on my ninth visit after my eight coffees the ninth day is for free it works for me mm -hmm. right and by giving you that stamp card and kind of ensuring you to come back to me and uh, come, making you come back in a certain way, I make sure that you get a better price by your free coffee, kind of optimizes mm -hmm. it. However, there's also people that go once a month and on the ninth month, they get a free coffee. Yeah. Well, how is that, how is that free coffee benefited me in any way? It's, in my opinion, it's a, it's a loss. So it's, it's not optimized. That's the first wave of loyalty. The second wave is basically very much the point systems. Spend 1,000 dirhams and you get 10,000 points. And then you spend, you have to get 3,000 more points to get this. And then 2,000 is about to expire. It's just too confusing. I mean, I don't know anybody who loves point systems. I mean, I uh, have an Air Miles card, but I don't use it. Yeah, I mean, just it's accumulating just... Accumulating points. Yeah, so the idea is very simple. Every loyalty system prior to repeat has worked on the idea of delayed gratification. You do something, you accumulate, you retire, you get a pension. You know, it's, it's all that delayed gratification. Millennials and, our, and my generation, we want everything now. Repeat is the first loyalty program in the world that works on the concept of instant gratification. Your past behavior determines what you get now. So you've, so you've got quite a few restaurants on board. and it's We've got 450 restaurants and increasing day by day. We have over 60,000 users. It's a free application. And, uh, and it's for dining only? It's for dining only. Because so that's, that's an interesting... That's strategically something that we chose, yeah. Why, why was that? Um, there's two parts to the delivery business as a platform that aggregates uh, all the restaurants. You can either receive orders and pass them on to the restaurant and the restaurant delivers. This is time and again has been proven to be a profitable business. So Yemek Sepeti in Turkey, Talabat and Zomato, when the restaurant delivers, mm -hmm. are highly profitable. That's because it's the delivery cost that's the oh, yeah, yeah. highest. It's, it's, exactly, because it just doesn't make sense. Because the restaurant does have the margin to absorb that cost. Now, problem with that model is the arrival of new aggregators like Deliveroo and Uber Eats, which basically controls the entire supply chain from the place, from the moment you place your order, their driver goes there, picks it up and brings it to you. It's just so seamless and so well done. I mean, 
Restaurants' business is to cook, not deliver. Mm -hmm. So the amount of restaurants that have mastered the art of delivery, in my humble opinion, is not more than 25%. So 75% of the time, you're going to get subpar experience in delivery because it's not the core business of the restaurant. And on the other side, if you use the aggregators like Deliveroo and these people, you get fantastic service, but they don't make money. All the restaurants I speak to, they always complain. They say, oh, they take 35% commission, they take 30% commission, and then they take also seven dirham delivery fee, blah, 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 all these things. But they don't realize, when, when, when I've actually broken down the numbers, the problem is not delivery Uber Eats and these people. I tell that to the restaurant owners. I always say the problem is delivery. It simply does not work. So in the moment when delivery, delivery gives me that amazing experience, through all the fees they make and what, whatnot, they still don't make money. They acquire customers at a very high cost. Mm -hmm. They have huge costs of delivery, managing all that fleet of uh, people. Um, and it just doesn't make money. But we hear a lot about the growth of delivery. Yeah. How big of the ratio is it at the moment? So let me, let me, I've also studied that very carefully around the world. What happens is this, with delivery, it's a very new phenomenon because of smartphones um, and computers. Um, and if you look at the delivery people today, 80-90% of the orders they get is through the phone. So you can very much say that the delivery business has completely been transformed, first by internet, but much more by the smartphones. So when we look at the, 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 the market today, the most important statistic is the, is the salary of the delivery boy on a monthly basis versus the clientele he's delivering to. This is the most important thing that you have to look at because this effectively determines the potential size of the delivery market. So UAE, for example, has the highest penetration of delivery in the overall FMB space in the world okay. at 25%. It's a ridiculous number. 25% of all meals are delivered in the UAE. And the reason is because while a delivery boy makes somewhere between three to 3,500, the clientele he's servicing is making 15,000. So you have very high income people being serviced by relatively low income people. So the gap between them is effectively 4x. In France, the gap is only 1.5 times. So the cost of delivery is exorbitant. As a result, in France, the delivery percentage is only uh, 5%. In the United States, is also around the same amount. Uh, in China, it's around 12%. And uh, in, in Nordic countries, where the, the smallest gap between incomes, it's almost non-existent, except pizza. Pizza is the outlier. <laughs> because so, it's a cheap product. It's such, it's, you can make the best pizza for six, seven dirhams. So it's, uh, as a result, you can absorb uh, that uh, cost. Uh, but 25% is still, it's not that substantial. Um, oh, the reason why in, num in, in sheer numbers, delivery transactions, might be even above 50%. What I've told you, the 25-75 split, is in terms of monetary value. Okay. But in terms of transactions, it might already be 50-50. I don't know, but it might be. So with Repeat, did you deliberately go for dining options Absolutely. to we scale? Absolutely. We wanted to go because we always have the option to introduce delivery. We have, the, we have a tech team of above, tech and product and quality assurance team of about 25 people. So I have no competence issues, but the, but the challenge that uh, I face, am I okay with becoming an aggregator where we place the order that the customer placed with us to the restaurant 
And are we okay with the restaurant providing a subpar experience and getting the blame for it? That's the worst part. The loss-making Deliveroo's and Uber Eats and these people of this world who are very happy to lose money continuously by subsidizing the rates at which they operate prevent somebody else being able to go into that field. So Repeat has been in business for how long now? We launched in January uh, this year, but there was a year of work that went into to be able to launch in January. But in the market for 10 months now, 11th month, we're in the 11th month right now. And what are the sort of trends that you've seen in terms of consumer behavior? Do people end up spending more because they've oh, got a discount? Uh, it's amazing. Huh? Like one of the biggest concerns of our merchants in the beginning was, ah, oh, but you know, if, I, if my customer is coming anyway, and if I give him discount, I will lose money. That's the conventional thinking. Oh, somebody's spending 100 dirhams. Now, let's say he's coming twice a week. And now if I give him a 20% off and now I get 80 from him, I'm going to lose money. That guy, not your come every six months customer, but that super regular guy who's, it's like habitual for him to come to you. Your, your, your shisha smoker that comes three times a week. Your customer that has an office upstairs uh, that comes twice uh, a week. I mean, anybody, by the way, I'm talking about casual dining. Okay. For casual dining, if you're going once a week or even twice a month, it's extraordinary behavior. The best casual dining places have approximately 12 visits per customer per year. So if you're in that cohort that's going once a week or twice a month every, uh, every two weeks, you're a fantastic customer. And those people, very interestingly, when you give them better price, they actually spend more. So how repeat makes you more money is very, very simple. Out of a cohort of 100% of your customer base, the people who will behave in that crazy level of once a week. Think about it. How many restaurants you go once a week to? One. Yeah, exactly. And how many restaurants you've been to in 2019? Ten? I don't know, actually. Yeah. At least you, you must have eaten in ten different places in this year, probably. At least, yeah. Yeah. But out of that ten, one of them, you end up going once a week. Mm-hmm. So it's one in ten behavior. So what I'm trying to say is the cohort of customers that you will have that come on a weekly basis will not exceed... So if you have a thousand people that have entered through your doors in a year, 50 of them will be that once a week customer. Maybe another 50 will be twice a month customer, but like 10% cohort. This extraordinary behavior will be very much limited to that 10%. So by the way, that 10% is responsible for 40% of your revenue. Because somebody coming weekly comes 50 times in a year. It's like 50 people who came one time. So you see the impact that makes. Those extraordinary customers, the top 10% cohort that you think you'll lose money on by rewarding them, magical thing happens. They actually spend more. Average repeat customer spends 23 to 24% more. So those people who are like regular, super regulars, guess what they do? They start bringing their friend, more friends. They, instead of having chicken, they start having steaks. They order more expensive items because they feel they're getting better value. They actually spend more. And it's not just the frequency with repeats. Oh, no, no, it's spending as well. Okay. So the more so, you spend, the more... So if, you're, if you are a less frequent customer, but who is a good spender, mm-hmm. you can also get good value as well. A customer who comes once a month and spends a thousand dirham versus a customer who comes once a week and spends a hundred dirham in each visit. The customer who comes once a month and spends a thousand is, is, a, is a great customer. So we have ways in which to equalize and make that fair as well. Okay. The underlying idea is fairness, how to make it fair. So you've done the first stage so far. Yeah. The second stage as well. The second stage, uh, in my opinion, we will be in a 
very stable trajectory um, by end of March okay. with all our upcoming product development, uh, with all our upcoming developments that are going to make the whole experience more seamless. I believe if we continue the way we are, by end of March 2020, we would have completed the stage one of saying, yeah, this works in every aspect. Okay. It works in 91% of our customers right now. 91% of our customers make more money because of us, by varying degrees, of course. But uh, we still have a bit more to go. By end of March, we would the product and the team and everything will be in a stage where we will be able to go international. And uh, the first places that we're going to be going to are going to be Riyadh, Kuwait City. And the last quarter of 2020, we want to be in London. Okay. Because um, the future of repeat is very much in the fintech space. And uh, London is the capital of the fintech industry. Our vision statement is quite simple. It says personalized pricing for everyone everywhere meaning that we want to be global, we want to be free, available to everybody, and we want to give everybody the, the, the price that they deserve based on their past behavior. Best of luck with that. I'm sure we'll have you back on once you... Inshallah. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime. Right. Thank you, Omar. Thank you.